what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. It is so preventable that we know that people don't have to die and be seriously injured in this way if we could just invest in making our streets safer and engineering our roads for slower speeds, we could save hundreds and thousands of lives. The most important thing that you can do is bring people together and, and connect people that are, are in this grief and in this loss. You don't have to have it all figured out at the beginning and just creating this space and letting people connect is really really powerful. Really a lack of political will on why we still have this preventable public health crisis ravaging our communities. And, you know, we chose the word confront because if we don't push back, there will be no change. Hi, I'd like to welcome our listeners to the Keep Kids Alive podcast. I'm Tom Everson. I am the executive director and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And we've been doing the Keep Kids Alive podcast for about a year and a half now. And we have two uh, very special guests with us for this episode. Amy Cohen is Sammy's mom, first and foremost. And she's a co-founder of Families for Safe Streets, which we'll learn uh, a lot about during this podcast. And we also have Lindsay Ganson, who's a member of the Nashville chapter of Families for Safe Streets. Uh, she's a director of advocacy and communications at uh, Walk Bike Nashville, and she's Hutch's daughter, and we'll learn about Hutch during this podcast as well. So welcome, Amy, Lindsay. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. I want to start out with giving you an opportunity to share your stories and your background and how it's brought you to the point where we'd be talking together as part of this podcast. So, Amy, if you wouldn't mind starting, uh, if you could share your story and share a little bit about Sammy and who he is, who he was, and what's special about Sammy, what light did he bring into this world? Well, thank you. You know, even seven years later, it can still be hard to share. So, Sammy was 12 years old. He was in eighth grade. He was incredibly bright, very athletic. He played three sports baseball, soccer, and hockey. And in fact, just a few weeks before he was killed, he, he rode his bicycle 100 miles in, in a race with my husband. Now, at the 75-mile marker, he was exhausted. And my husband called me and sent me a picture and was like, Sammy was sprawled out on the ground. And my husband said, I really don't think he's going to make it. He's exhausted. I think we'll be home soon. And so I was waiting for them to come home, which never happened because Sammy was a fighter. You know, he got back up on his bike and he finished the ride. He was the youngest person to complete the entire 100 miles that year. Wow. You know, what an accomplishment. You know, I miss him so much. It's, you know, really unimaginable. You know, we'd had a silly little fight right before he was killed. The day before he was killed, we went to visit some friends and my husband you know, was like, he has to come and he was fighting. No, he wanted to stay home and study for the specialized high school admission test. He really wanted to go to one of New York's top high schools. And we made him go and he was so mad at me. For some reason, it was all my fault. So he didn't talk to me for like an entire day. Tuesday morning rolled around October 8th, 2013. 
and he woke up and I said I was sorry. I didn't let him study and made him have a good time. And he forgave me and he gave me a kiss and made him breakfast. We both left the house together. He went to school and I went to work. And that was it. I never got to see him alive. So there was so much pain after he was killed. I, you know, I think many of your people you have on this show can, can relate that it, it's, you know, so much in there and it has to go somewhere or, or it would eat us alive. So I started speaking out. My husband had said, you know, if only this had been London, Sammy would be alive. They, we had been there on vacation the previous summer. They had 20, 20 signs everywhere. They'd had adopted vision zero. And so I started speaking out just weeks after he was killed. Our family testified at a city council hearing to lower New York City's speed limit. I connected with our local street safety group. I kept saying, I can't be the only crazy person. We should bring everyone together and, and have our collective voices press for change. I met Lindsay at that time. We had our first meeting uh, early in 2014, and that was the birth of Families for Safe Streets. We collectively take our voices to press for change, and we support those personally impacted. What are some of the accomplishments or, you know, goals that you've been able to uh, succeed in related to Families for Safe Streets? And, and maybe talk a little bit more about the origin story and how people have been brought together through Families for Safe Streets. Sure. Well, so we are a project of transportation alternatives, and they had been supporting people like Lindsay and myself over the years, you know, sort of one person at a time, speaking out and fighting for change. And we came together, like I said, early in 2014. You know, I got a list of all the people they previously supported. I reached out. I contacted everyone. We came together. We were maybe under two dozen people. You know, we, we met for a day and a half. We got to know each other. We, you know, really identified that we wanted to come together and fight for change. And we announced that our first fight would be to press the New York City to lower its speed limit, which required a change in state law. And as we are starting to do this, never done anything like it, you know, speaking to the media, testifying at hearings, going to Albany. And people who had been at it a long time, you know, lobbyists or legislators were telling us, oh, it'll take 10 years. I said, oh, my God, I'll be dead in 10 years. Who could live with this much pain? And I think people were pleasantly just surprised to see that we did it in one legislative session. In four months, we came together in February and in June, New York State had passed a law allowing New York City to lower its speed limit. And I think it was really a recognition that if you give a a face to this preventable public health crisis, it really can make a difference. And I I certainly can echo that. You know, early on in our history with Keep Kids Alive Drive 25, the families, the foster family connected with me from Mesquite, Texas. Their 10-year-old son was uh, hit and killed while crossing the street on Halloween night in uh, 2003. And in Texas, the uh, state mandate is 30 miles an hour in uh, residential zones and the street that they lived on was only two blocks long and it was only wide enough for uh, one car to get through if you had cars parked on either side. And But by state mandate, it had to be 30 miles an hour. But their uh, state legislator stepped up and introduced legislation that would eat more easily allow municipalities to lower their limits because 
up to that point, they could lower their limit, but only if they did a traffic engineering study on every single street they wanted to lower the limit on. And so, for example, in the city of Mesquite, it would have cost $14 million to do these studies, and that just wasn't going to happen. So they did initiate this legislation, which I call Kyle's Law, and I ended up going down and testifying at the State House in Texas as that law went, or as the draft of the bill went through committee and onto the floor. And what uh, Kyle's Law did in Texas, it simply uh, took out the caveat of having to do a traffic engineering study on every residential street uh, that was posted at 30 miles an hour in order to be able to reduce the speed to 25 or even lower. So it was a rather simple piece of legislation, but really opened up the opportunity for municipalities in Texas to make a real concrete step to create safer environment uh, simply because of the reduction in average speed. And after the legislation was signed into law and enacted, worked with, with communities to create Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 campaigns to engage residents in making the reality of the lower speed limit uh, a reality in terms of the way that people were driving. So a little bit about what that legislation entailed. And I came across a um, study that had been done in 1990, uh, 1999 of police reported what they called accidents. And I am sure that we're in concert that accident is not the word to use. I like to use the word incident or crashes. But the study that had shown that pedestrian deaths were three times uh, the number in 30-mile-an-hour zones as they were in 25-mile-an-hour zones, and just being able to present that data to the uh, Transportation Committee for the State House in Texas was enough to move the bill onto the floor, and it actually was signed into law in 2005, so it did take a couple years to do that. So being able to move something in four months is absolutely amazing. And, you know, I really applaud your efforts to do that because I, I understand how tough it can be to do that. I mean, it really was building on, you know, the voices like Lindsay of people who'd been fighting you know, single-handedly. And so before I talk more about our mission or our program model, you know, I think uh, I'd love to hear Lindsay be able to share the, you know, about her dad and the fight that she waged even before we came together as a collective of families in the streets. Well, well, thank you, Amy, for segueing to Lindsay. Lindsay would would uh, welcome hearing your story about your dad and what's informed uh, your advocacy work since that time. Yeah, sure. Um, so my dad was walking to work in Brooklyn, um, actually not very far from where Sammy was killed, but a few years earlier, he was walking to the subway to get to work one morning, a weekday, and he was walking with my sister. So he would ride the subway with my sister who was in high school at the time. I was working and, and not living at home. Um, I was in my 20s. And he was walking to school with my sister and with her friend, and they were walking to the, to the subway so my sister could go to school and he could go to work. And a driver came speeding up a street and hit my dad in a crosswalk in front of, um, Amy will know this well, on 8th Avenue, the, the street in Brooklyn, you will see sort of at major commuting times, lots of people 
walking to and from the subway. It's a very well-traveled path. It's in a more residential area to a subway to, you know, link to jobs all over the city. So in, in front of dozens and dozens of people, he was, he was hit and um, he was very, very severely injured, was rushed to the hospital and by some miracle, he survived. So we're very grateful every day. He is he is still with us. It's been more than 10 years now, but I definitely echo enjoying Amy and saying that Todd's story doesn't get easier. And uh, from there, it really, really changed the course of, of what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, it changed my life in trying to make sure, you know, help support my mom who became my father's caregiver and making sure he got the best care. His most, he has many injuries from the crash, but the most debilitating is a traumatic brain injury. So making sure he got the best care, the, the best therapies, you know, everything that we could get him to ensure he could have the best recovery. He's supporting my, my family through that, which continues today. Um, the recovery continues. But then it really changed my passion and how I wanted to spend my time and, and really wanted to prevent other people from suffering this kind of debilitating injury. And, and now having met a lot of people who have lost a loved one who was walking when they were killed um, in, a, in a crash or been injured, something that I hear a lot from people is, I had no idea this happened to so many people. And I was one of those people. I had no idea in New York City the the number of people that were killed and the number of serious injuries, which at the time was 70,000 people seriously injured every year. And, and I just had no idea the scale of the problem. And I think a lot of my fellow New Yorkers didn't either. And at the time, they had already begun making some pretty sweeping changes to the way that the streets were engineered. They started adding separated protected bike paths. And those things were very controversial. You know, even being a native New Yorker, seeing some of them, I didn't feel like they were for me. I didn't bike in traffic. I didn't bike on the street, but I didn't understand all the benefits of a separated bike path. But it's not just for people on bikes, but it's also for pedestrians. And I didn't even understand the danger that pedestrians face. So just being the person that I am, when this happened to me and my family, I started researching all of this, understanding really the the depth and the breadth of, of the problem and wanting to do something about it. So I got involved with transportation alternatives. I ended up working for transportation alternatives, got a job working for them in 2011, and then had the honor of, of meeting Amy and being part of forming Families for Safe Streets in 2014. And then since I've uh, moved to Nashville, and I've continued the work here in starting the chapter of Families for Safe Streets in Nashville, and I also work for Walk Bike Nashville. And before that, when I moved here before, I, I took this again as my full-time career. I was on the board of Walk Bike Nashville, too, and volunteered. So I just can't can't help it now. I think traffic safety and the toll it takes on our on our families in our communities is something, you know, that once you see, you cannot unsee because it is so preventable that we know that people don't have to die and be seriously injured in this way. If we could just invest in making our streets safer and engineering our roads for slower speeds, we could save hundreds and thousands of lives and prevent 
probably tens of thousands of injuries. And all it takes is, you know, political will and investment. So I see that everywhere I am. And it's, it's so apparent here in Nashville that I just, I have to fight this fight and, and hope that we can continue to change our streets. Well, I'm grateful that your advocates on the ground, that your, your feet are moving in a uh, forward direction uh, in addressing some of these concerns. Lindsay, I would like to invite you to talk about your dad a little bit, about you know, what animates him today, you know, what animated him in your life when he was struck before his brain injury. And then the, the second question, just so it doesn't get lost, is I want to invite you to talk about what transportation alternatives is all about and you know how that got started and its influence on what's happening not only in New York but perhaps across the country as well. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with my my dad, Hutch Ganson, is a businessman and a numbers guy, probably first and foremost. He loves following the stock market. He loves teaching me about the stock market. He loves sailing and being on the water and being next to the ocean. That's a passion I've taken up more than the stocks and the stock market, I have to say. But uh, he's also just a really fun-loving and kind person that um, always was never too busy to help and step in with, you know, my homework or, you know, really anything. Needs that you have growing up, he was just always a really good partner and, and teacher and, and fixer of things. Yeah, I'd say since the crash happened, he's never been able to return to work, which definitely changed his life. But I, I think it's been such a gift to us to be able to work on Families for Safe Streets together. So for us both to be a member, and even after I left New York City and left um, to move to Nashville and wasn't able to participate in Families for Safe Streets, in the same way, he continued to be very involved. And so for him, I think something that we heard a lot in his recovery from brain injury is that really after the first year, that's all the progress you're going to make. That, you know, you can only expect to really make big gains in that first year. And then after that, it really, you know, declines or stays the same. And he has loved being a part of Families for Safe Streets because He's been able to to meet other people who have also been injured and been able to say, you know what, keep at it, keep at it. It's not the first year, you know, you'll keep getting better. And I think being able to participate in the group and be supported by the group and connect with people through Families for Safe Streets has really helped him in his recovery and given him passion. And he's gotten to, to do work and to see it make a difference. And that's been such a gift to him and me and to be able to work on it together has just been a really special experience. What's a specific role or example that you could give of what your dad's been able to contribute to Families for Safe Streets, the thing he's loved the most? (laughs) Yeah, the thing he loved the most has been um, meeting with elected officials and going to Albany and being able to prep for those meetings and be in those meetings and sort of be able to look the person in the eyes and say, no, like you have to look at me and, and, and hear from me and hear my story and be with these people, you know, in families for safe streets that he's connected with and hear their stories. I think that 
has been such a, a powerful experience for him to really feel like he's a part of making that, that meaningful change. I can always count on him to go with me to the state capitol. We charter buses. Yep, exactly as you shared, and go to Albany to fight for our statewide changes, so lowering the speed limit, our automated enforcement program, and a range of other bills that we've been successful at. You know, he always rose to the occasion, and he would share his story and other people who were injured. You know, it's a three-and-a-half-hour bus trip, and for many of us, you know, it's a real bonding experience when we go and fight for change. We open our hearts, we pour out our pain, and we, you know, return on this bus together, really, all feeling so exposed. And he was such a gift to so many of our other newer members who were injured, like like Lindsay had shared. He would inspire them that, you know, they told me there was no hope for me, and look at me now. I could take this bus. I could share my story myself. It, it was very, very moving. I want to segue then to talk about transportation alternatives. If you could share about, you know, how did transportation alternatives start? You know, what's its mission? What are some examples of what's happening through transportation alternatives? Well, Transportation Alternatives is a 50-year-old street safety organization based here in New York City. They've been fighting for safer streets. And like I said, they've been supporting family members sort of one at a time speaking out. And they were really instrumental for helping us create Families for Safe Streets. You know, we could never have done it without them. And it's really a key to our mission and our model. You know, our mission is to confront the preventable epidemic of traffic violence. Share that we chose each of those words very intentionally. As Lindsay mentioned, it's really a lack of political will on why we still have this preventable public health crisis ravaging our communities. And, you know, we chose the word confront because if we don't push back, there will be no change. So we share our stories. We, you know, have rallies and vigils and we've, we've done crazy things like civil disobedience and gotten arrested because otherwise change was not going to happen. Um, and we do also call it traffic violence because, as you pointed out, these are not accidents. These are violent, preventable act, acts that, that we can and we must do something about. And so, you know, transportation alternatives help us come together. We work in partnership with them. And it's one of the, you know, three core components of why our model is so effective. You know, first, we're not just one person fighting because it is exhausting and this is really hard work and we use our collective voices and it allows, you know, more power and gives, you know, uh, an example to the, the numbers of people who are impacted and that affects everyone, black, white, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, urban, rural. So that collective voice really gives a face to what this crisis is really all about. But it also allows everyone to take a break when they need to. Like, this is heartbreaking work, and it allows people to step up and step back. And yet we're always there. We can always show up. We can always put on the pressure because it can be somebody else the next day. You know, the, the second key successful component is our partnership with Transportation Alternatives. You know, I often say we are the involuntarily volunteer army. We didn't sign up for this. I'd much rather be doing something else and have my family intact. 
And so we don't come as experts. We don't exactly always know what's the most important solution right now that is politically viable that will save lives. They really help us, you know, grapple with those issues and, and come up with the, the best place to put our energy. They have the connections. They have the expertise. And the third is that we use, you know, a real grassroots organizing model to push back um, and demand change. So those are the three things that are really successful. And as you can see, working in partnership with transportation alternatives is a key part of that. You know, it reminds me of a few things. You know, one is the power in numbers because, you know, every one of us only has, you know, so much of a a bank of energy at any one time to to put into whatever our focus might be and knowing that others might be able to step up and you know when our energy wanes that the power and numbers of having those partners is uh, is so important but I also am always struck by the uh, the word prevention the, and how important prevention is to focus on that because I know with our own organization uh, keep kids alive drive 25 that we started out as a prevention-focused organization, not wait and wanting to wait until a tragedy happened, but to look at how can we engage people in the community in being the solution to the problems that we cause, because we're the speeders, we're the ones who are, you know, holding onto our cell phones when we're driving, you know, we're the ones who are running stop signs or stoplights or, you know, any number of behaviors that as human beings, we have to make a conscious decision to act otherwise. And, you know, hopefully when legislation is enacted, I always like to look at legislation, that good legislation is always about preserving relationships first and foremost. And for me, if I look at it that way, that it's, it, it personalizes it because obviously it's about people. It's about the people who come home to us and that we hope to come home to and about our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues. I'd like to segue over, Lindsay, to you because you you worked for Transportation Alternatives, correct? Yes, yeah. I worked there for um, almost five years. And what capacity did you fill with Transportation Alternatives? What kind of work did you do with them? So I was hired to work on pedestrian safety. I was actually their first safety focused employee. So I was brought on to rethink and, and, and shape the way that the organization talked about safety and also really to bring this idea of Vision Zero, which is now very widespread in the U.S. and adopted by, by many cities, but back in 2010 was, was not very well known here in the U.S. to bring that concept to New York um, to talk about it with everyone from, you know, the mayor's office and elected officials to our system of community boards, which are responsible. And the system of community boards in New York City approves all of the land use decisions. So all of decisions about re-engineering streets or adding a bike lane or adding a curb extension, especially if it involves taking away parking on street parking is going to come before these community boards, which are um, appointed positions. So to really work with those community board members and the folks that attend those community board meetings to talk about Vision Zero and about safety and about the the crisis of pedestrian safety. Uh, like many organizations uh, focused on transportation issues in the U.S., historically, transportation alternatives had been 
focused on biking first, you know, recognize the importance of walking and public transit as well and how they all work together in a mobility ecosystem, but had had a lot of the members and the donors and the influencers in the organization were uh, bike enthusiasts. So that had influenced the agenda of the organization. And they were really trying to broaden that and really attack this problem that they were seeing, you know, in the numbers and in the conversation about traffic safety with real uh, safety solutions. So that, that was my charge when I came on. Well, what, what are some examples of what you were able to accomplish in your five years at Transportation Alternatives? Probably the thing I'm, I'm most proud of was the authorization, the enabling legislation that allowed New York City's first automated speed camera enforcement program. So that that was something that um, when we started the group Families for Safe Streets in subsequent years, the, the group also worked on. Um, but it was a smaller group of us that initially worked to get that bill over the finish line to uh, allow the first program in, in New York City. And that was a fight where we worked with a lot of the people that Amy mentioned Initially, that transportation alternatives had worked with for years who had lost somebody or lost a loved one in a traffic crash. We didn't have a formal group at the time, but we were working with a lot of different individuals. And then also just a lot of transportation alternatives members and volunteers, really dedicated volunteers to travel to Albany, to do in-person meetings, to lobby, to send petitions, to get that, that first program in place because we knew that once we, um, of course, they put a sunset in the bill, which Amy can talk about later. I mean, it's been a fight every time to get it reauthorized, but we did know that if we could just get it authorized in the first place and get that first enabling legislation, even if it's a very small restricted pilot, that that could really open the door to a much bigger program in the future. Although, Amy could talk about how it's been a fight every step of the way to get that program expanded. And it's thanks to Families for Safe Streets that it's the robust program it is today. But that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. And Amy, would you want to speak to that and maybe talk about uh, some of the effects of the uh, automated enforcement? Sure. You know, as Lindsay started with, until it happened to you, you have no idea the scale of the problem or even any work that had gone on before. So, you know, I arrived on the scene. There was this small pilot. Until Lindsay shared it just now, I actually didn't realize you were involved in that. Um, There was this very small pilot, and the data started coming back how effective it was. And we had just lowered New York City's speed limit. And, you know, clearly making sure people followed it was a part of the solution. Until we redesign every street to convey what the speed limit should be, we need these interim tools like speed cameras. And, you know, the data showed it was effective. We see all the problems now with traffic stops and police enforcement is, you know, so prominent in the news. Automated enforcement does not racially profile. It doesn't escalate to an, you know, armed encounter exchange. You know, there was seemed no reason why we would have to wait the four years of a pilot until we expanded the program dramatically. And so we started going to Albany again. And sadly, this time it didn't take this one legislative session. You know, it took a few. And we were caught in the middle of a political fight where 
you know, there's Republicans in one branch of the government and Democrats in the other half of the legislature. And, you know, they, in fact, ended the session when the cameras were set to expire without reaching a, a plan to even renew, let alone expand. And, you know, over the course of the years of the pilot and our efforts, people began to realize that this is an incredible life-saving tool and every child deserves to go to school safely and come home safely. And they were so popular. There was so much outrage that we, you know, we put on the pressure. They went off in June. All summer, we worked to escalate and raise, you know, people's awareness that these, these cameras were now off. We, we staged a marathon walk. We walked 26 miles around one block. I think it was like a hundred times going around the block. And the block was the office of the legislator who was holding up the, the renewal, who had let it expire. I then slept outside of his office for 24 hours and I had people come by and put a little post-it on my car of why they supported the camera program and recorded them and released it on social media as a message to that particular senator. And we just kept doing that kind of thing, speaking at senior centers in his district, speaking at, you know, having rallies and events. And ultimately, he lost his seat. The person who replaced him in the New York State Senate became the sponsor of the bill. In the interim, the, the governor and the mayor reached an agreement. And on Mother's Day, I sat next to the governor of the state of New York, and he signed an emergency authorization to turn the cameras back on until the legislature reconvened in September. And that is how we now have the nation's largest speed camera program. And it was this success, as well as some of the others, that other street safety groups around the country, like Transportation Alternatives, started saying, wow, I want to have a family for Safe Streets Chapter 2. And we really had no intention when we came together. I mean, I was really just putting one foot in front of the other at that point. We had no intention to really expand, but there had, was such an interest to replicate this model that so we now have 16 chapters in 10 states continuing making this fight at the, the local and state level in communities across the country. Well, thank you for doing what's in your power to do, because I, I think that oftentimes we may not think about what is in our power to do. And what was in your power to do was to do that 26 miles around the block, you know, to sleep in for or sleep or, or sit in for 24 hours to raise awareness and really influence what was going to happen literally down the road. So I think for all of our listeners is to recognize, I know when I hear from uh, people around the country and they'll say, well, you know, what can I do? Uh, you know, maybe they don't have the support of a local police chief or a mayor or whoever the person might be. But I said, well, what can you, what, what is your sphere of influence? You know, are you part of the PTA? Do you have a neighborhood association? Do you have a starting point? Do you have a group of people that you can start to bring together and to make a difference? Because when you talk about grassroots mobilization, which you've been involved with in so many ways, is recognizing that all of us probably have partners somewhere and they're probably not that far away. But I'm also reminded too that when we think about the partisan nature sometimes of, of legislation, that when it comes to traffic safety, I can never understand how that would be a partisan issue. It's a people issue. 
It's about all of us, uh, regardless of who we are and what our background is and what our experience is, is. I always like to ask the question, you know, who do you love and who loves you? Or those two questions, who do you love and who loves you? Because to me, those are the people that represent why we would do anything at all to make streets safer for the benefit of everybody who, you know, walks, cycle, plays, drives, or rides, that it's about all of us collectively. Anyway, end of my speech. (laughs) Did you want to chime in, Lindsay? Amy just explained it beautifully. I think think something that folks might not know if they're not necessarily trained in uh, community organizing tactics is that best way to fight these fights is to choose your target and know that that target is a person. It's always a person that holds the power to make the change that, that you're seeking. And I think that's something that Amy has, has done through her leadership of the group Families for Safe Streets is really make it personal. Like, yes, it is sad that these issues are politicized and partisan when it should be about safety and about everybody. But that that's just the nature of the world that we live in. And if we want to make change, we have to live in that world and we have to make it about the person that's standing in, in the way. So I'd also just encourage people that are interested in making a change to think about the person that's preventing that change from from happening and who really holds the power to make that change and really structure what, what you want to do to make that change around influencing that person. Yeah, and that is so key. It's not, you know, a lot of times I hear from our chapter leaders that they want to target the local Department of Transportation or it's like, no, those people at the DOT, they're only doing as much or as little as their boss wants them to, their elected official, their mayor, their council. It is the people who people can vote in or out of office. And by organizing, we are putting on pressure so that they can do the right thing. Because otherwise they will fear maybe they will lose their seat. So it is about building those coalitions, finding the right people to support us in our fight for safe streets who may, you know, that mayor, council member, state senator, maybe, you know, also connected to and worry about losing support from that organization. I want to invite you to talk a little bit more about Vision Zero, if you could share with our listeners about what Vision Zero is and how you become connected with that. And then also with your your national petition or letter to President Biden and to the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, sure. So Vision Zero has been a transformative policy in the traffic safety world. That's really about shifting the way that engineers, planners, the folks in charge of of making our roads safe, the way that they think about what our roads can do and what level of safety they can achieve. So Vision Zero is setting the goal of zero deaths and serious injuries on our road. That is the only acceptable result of the work that we do in road safety is that nobody should die. And it's, it's a recognition that all of the deaths are and, and serious injuries are preventable. And they're preventable through 
various traffic safety tactics, but most importantly, the engineering of our roads, that there are things that we can do to our streets to make them safer. And those things are going to stop all traffic deaths. And it's a pause. It's a real important pause in the way that we we think about how we travel on our roads and, and what we accept to say we we are not going to accept as a society, as an agency, as a city, as a department, as a mayor's office, that anybody is going to die on these on these streets that we have control of, that we have these tools in the toolbox, and we need to put them in place to stop people from dying. So it, that's the heart of it. It's implemented a lot of different ways across the world and across the country. And of course, there's model programs and there's, you know, what I might call PR programs where it's really just a statement and it's it's a framework that they like to put into a report that's really about, you know, maintaining the status quo. So there's great Vision Zero programs and there's problematic ones. We here in Nashville, are we, we are very new in being a Vision Zero city and declaring a Vision Zero goal. And we are right now working on an action plan, we being Metro Nashville government is working on a action plan for their Vision Zero goal. So it's a real make or break moment in, in my mind for Vision Zero in Nashville. And we'll have to see if, if it ends up being one of those model programs or one of those PR programs. But that is Vision Zero. Well, I know I, I can echo uh, a lot of that. I've had the privilege of being the chair for the Vision Zero Task Force here in Omaha that was appointed by the mayor a few years ago. And so we did about 18 months of uh, work as a task force that, in effect, resulted in uh, the hiring of our first Vision Zero coordinator for the city. This just happened a few months ago with the hiring of the first Vision Zero coordinator. And, you know, we very much look forward to the mobilization of so many partners throughout the city to focus in on what needs to be done to realize that goal of zero. And, you know, for our listeners, you know, if it was simply about being a PR program, you know, it's easy enough to come up with a slogan and, you know, put it on a billboard or a bumper sticker or something like that. But, you know, Vision Zero needs to engage the community and, you know, the will of those involved in city planning and street design and all of that to create an environment that really does uh, support the goal. I will quit speechifying <laughs> again because I want to come back to to Amy to talk about the Toward Zero Deaths campaign. Sure. So our fight for zero traffic deaths to get President Biden to commit to eliminating traffic deaths on our roadways by 2050 you know, really comes down to this same framework that, that Lindsay was speaking of. It's really that zero is the only morally acceptable goal and that we need to rethink dramatically what we are doing and how we are doing it. Because, you know, you know the horrific numbers. 40,000 people lose their lives in the U.S. on our roads and millions are injured every single year. That's the equivalent of a regional plane crashing every single day and everyone on the plane dying, 100 people every day. But it's day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year for the last century. You know, and each of those numbers, each one is someone's family like mine. Each one is a child like Sammy, a friend, a neighbor, you know, millions injured like Hutch, 
And as a nation, it's really time to take decisive and collective action to address these preventable crashes. So Families for Safe Streets for years now, we've been working locally in our communities, but it's the first time we've come together collectively and we've joined with the Vision Zero Network, the Road to Zero Coalition, and hundreds of organizations to urge President Biden to make this commitment to adopt a, a, a zero traffic death approach. And it really will require four key components. We have to double down on what works through evidence-based strategies. And on our website, you can see that we show how we can get to three quarters of the way to zero right now just by implementing solutions that are existing and already proven to work. The second component is to advance new life-saving technology and vehicles and infrastructure to get us the rest of the way there. You know, the third component is that we have to really reprioritize safety using a safe systems approach. That's one of the overarching existing frameworks. And, and that will include tying federal funds to saving lives. You know, I heard this recently and I still find it so horrifying. Every year, the state has to report to the federal government, you know, how many people they think are going to die on our roadways. It's part of the report they do to get their annual allocation from the feds. What's horrifying is they can report year after year that the death rate is going to go up, the number of people killed in their state will go up, and they still get all the same money. How can it be possible that we just write a bank check without them requiring that they make any changes? So that's a third, the third key component. And the fourth is this suffering even, you know, we're predicting it won't even get to zero, you know, if the president makes this commitment until 2050. There are so many people who will be impacted along the way, and it is unconscionable as a society that we are letting this suffering continue, that we need to support crash victims. Right now, the, the, the federal government has a Crime Victims' Rights Act where Victims of crime get support, logistical assistance, compensation if they need it to bury their family member. And if the driver is in charge, crash victims get none of that. And so we're saying that needs to be another fourth component of com committing to a zero traffic death approach. So we've been sharing our stories on social media. We've built a, a strong coalition and we are urging the administration to make this commitment. And how can our listeners uh, find out more about transportation alternatives and families for safe streets? Well, we have a website for, you know, both transportation alternatives, transalt.org, familiesforsafestreets.org. On the FSS website, there's a wealth of resources. If you have been personally impacted in a crash, no one should have to endure this alone. There's information on how to start a chapter and ways that you can get involved. And there is a separate website for this campaign that we're doing collectively with the other organizations called zerotrafficdeaths.org. Just to let our listeners know, Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 has signed on to that initiative as well towards zero deaths. You know, we need to take the collective power that we have, no matter what kind of an organization and what size we might be, across the country to really be unified in our efforts. And so really so grateful for the work that you're doing. And, you know, perhaps some of our listeners would be uh, interested in starting a local chapter for Families for Safe Streets to get involved in uh, advocacy in their community and their state to help focus in on, on those who can uh, make the decisions to 
create the kind of legislation that will help to uh, lead us forward in these efforts. Lindsay, just wondering, is, is there some thoughts that are going through your head that you wanted to share? I just wanted to um, share that, that Walk Bike Nashville has signed on to that as well. And also just reflecting on having been part of starting Families for Safe Streets in New York and now working on the chapter here in Nashville. I think it's such painful and, and difficult work that people who might think about starting a chapter might be intimidated by it. And I think the thing that I've learned in, in being part of starting these, these two chapters is that the most important thing that you can do is bring people together and, and connect people that are, are in this grief and in this loss. Of course, it's better if it's all perfect strategically plotted out, but you don't have to have it all figured out at the beginning. And just creating this space and letting people connect is really really powerful and, and a lot can happen just from creating that space to connect and allowing people who have experienced this extraordinary loss, this really sudden and violent and, and painful loss to um, be with each other. I kind of want to bring us full circle in asking the question, you know, Amy, how has Sammy continued to inform or be the spirit of, of the work that you do, the mission that you're on? Well, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, assume that, you know, I don't know, some kind of heroic person or something. And I will share that I am inherently incredibly shy. If you had asked me years ago if I would ever do something like this, speak to the press, to an elected official, I would have said, oh, no way. I am too intimidated. And, you know, I, I think when the worst thing happens to you, you feel like you have nothing else to lose. But, but also, I have Sammy living inside of me. You know, I shared that he was such a fighter. He got up on his bike and he finished the ride. He fought for his life. They told us, you know, it didn't look good. And he, and he fought and he tried to live for six hours. It, it, you know, he couldn't make it. But I... I have him inside of me, and I am fighting for him. And and similarly, Lindsay, you know, how does your dad continue to inform the work that you do today? I mean, just in his curiosity and his um, ability to continue to learn, and I think a lot has changed in the world of, of traffic safety and um, how we approach the, the tactics that we use to, to keep people safe. And I think you know, there's an important conversation happening nationally about the traffic stops and enforcement. And I think just my father has really inspired me to continue to evolve and learn and listen and focus on the, the best solutions and continue to push for, for change. Well, thank you. I always like to ask at the, the end, you know, is there anything that you're thinking of now? You say, well, I, I don't want to end this conversation without having said this. Is there anything that comes to mind? We would love everyone to join with us in the fight for zero traffic deaths. We have a petition on our website, zerotrafficdeaths.org. Please go to the website, sign the petition, join the call to President Biden. 
and make this a national priority. Uh, you know, leadership starts at the top, and we've been fighting in our local communities, but we've lacked that strong leadership from, from the federal government, and President Biden has experienced this heartache firsthand, and we are really hoping and counting on him to uh, make this a priority of his administration. Thank you, Amy. And Lindsay, is there anything that you'd want to put a punctuation mark on our conversation? That she's not a heroic person and and she's shy and that just makes everything that she's done for traffic safety all the more inspiring to me. And I know it's really inspired my father and my family. And I just want to thank her for everything she's done to make our streets safer. She gives so much of herself and she's really brought so many people along with her in, in working to make these changes that, that have already made such a difference in New York City, but now also really across the country and in, in guiding and supporting the local chapters of Families for Safe Street. So just want to thank Amy for everything she does. Well, I want to thank you both, not only for what you've done and what you're doing, but really for who you are. Because I think that, you know, the strength and uh, resolve to be able to continue to move forward in your efforts in honor and memory of Sammy and in honor of your uh, dad, Hutch, it's it's just that internal fortitude and spirit that, you know, we really need to all harness and recognize that it's within each of us to be able to, to harness that and make a difference as we move forward in addressing the issues that really are right on the roads in front of our houses and homes that we witness every day. So, you know, thank you very much for for uh, joining us for uh, this episode of the Keep Kids Alive podcast. And uh, I look forward to continuing to stay connected. You know, for our listeners, we do have a link on the Keep Kids Alive website on our partners page with transportation alternatives and families for safe streets. So you can log on to Keep Kids Alive Drive 25.org or KKAD25.org and click on our partners page and be able to log right into uh, their page as well. Well, thank you, uh, Amy and Lindsay, for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. Really grateful for the opportunity. And a reminder that the weekend of June 11th through 13th, we'll be having our 10th annual Live Forward 5K Run Walk to Remember uh, in honor of loved ones who've died in traffic incidents. We hope to have as many states represented with teams for our virtual event as possible. You can learn more about how to get involved, how to start a team at kkad25.org or keepkidsalivedrive25.org. You'll see it right on the homepage. All you have to do is click and sign up to create a team and invite family, friends, and colleagues to join your team and to make a difference wherever you are in the United States or even in the world. Thank you for listening. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids, it's about safety, it's about caring, it's about time.